You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Today's Ask Altature is about a topic near and dear to my heart and the hearts of pretty much everybody, which is money, particularly the history of money. Why is it important to know the history of money? Because when you understand the history of money, not only over the past 50 or 100 years, but over the past 10,000 years, you really understand the points when money has enough problems with the current form of money that it needs to evolve into something else, the way bartering you know, evolved into coins, evolved into paper money backed by metal, evolved into paper, and, and maybe the next evolution might be crypto. And there's all the little mini evolutions in between. And this helps inform you of like what's happening in the economy now in terms of having some understanding of what inflation is, deflation, and so on. So this is part one of the history of money. Part two is going to be more crypto focused and maybe what the future of money might look like. But I'm joined by Omen Malakhan. He's been on this podcast many times before. He was the top guy at Citigroup for all things crypto. He's written a book, Rearchitecting Trust, about money and crypto. Such a smart guy. Pleasure to talk to him about the history of money. And here we go. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. 
This is the James Altucher Show. So today, Ask Altucher Show, I brought Ahmed, basically someone in the Ask Altucher, they're like, hey, you guys should talk about the origin of cash and then lead into crypto. Well, okay. It's a very interesting topic. Then Omid Malakhan has been on the podcast many times. Most recently discussed his latest book, uh, Rearchitecting Trust, which basically is like a history of money and a history of Bitcoin. You were also really involved with Citigroup's Bitcoin decisions for a long time, and you recently retired from there. But it's a very interesting thing going all the way back because money predates recorded history. In fact, probably the first recorded history are people keeping track of IOUs in the marketplace. So they would be like sticks where you would make notches for every time Omen bought, you know, an apple from me, I would make another notch on the stick for Omen. And that was the origins of basic accounting. And some of those sticks are 30,000 years old. There's also a theory that counting was originally invented for commercial transactions. I believe it, because why else would you need to count? Right. So there are two theories on the origins of money. The more popular one is the barter theory, which was actually really popularized by Adam Smith. But the idea there was before there was money, we had barter societies. Barter societies were highly, highly inefficient. So people invented money because it was easier to trade your wheat for money and then use that money for labor down the line than to actually price everything and everything else. The other theory of money is the credit theory. And that theory, which I think is more credible, pun intended, is that barter never existed because it just would have been a nightmare. Instead, people just did favors for each other. And it was like, I'll give you some wheat today, and then next week you'll help me with something, and we'll call it even. Uh, and that money was invented as a way to settle these favors occasionally. Well, let me ask you, you know, as societies grew, so let's say three, four, or 5,000 years ago, we started you know, having societies that were bigger than tribes. Maybe it was even longer ago than that. So suddenly you had to deal with people you didn't know. Mm. Maybe if two tribes came together in a marketplace and each tribe was 150 people, suddenly you have to have a little more trust involved. And you know, if, we're, if, it's just, if it's just 15 people living in a cave, okay, you owe me next week and I'll kill you or whatever if you don't you know, do it. But when, when they decided got a little better, you needed a way to, to an account for things and a way to maybe transact right then and there. Yes, and actually the anthropologists, they really believe in the credit theory because they've also observed this in more primitive societies in modern times. And Basically, that's the idea that within the tribe, there are many forces, social, cultural, or the threat of violence, where people sort of live up to their debts and their favors. But across tribes, there isn't. You don't want to trust each other. Now, alternatively, across time, like even within the same tribe, if you someone does you a favor and you're like, oh, you know, I don't know if this person's going to remember that they owe me a favor 10 years from now, that's when I would want to cash it in. If you just exchange it for money, then it becomes permanent. But then there's the question, was barter something that was very broad and general? So for instance, if I made axes and you made grains, would I trade axes for grains or would we 
barter in the sense that, okay, we're both going to trade our objects for some common thing, like, I don't know, animal skins or seashells or whatever. And then we're able to transact with this more common, we, we barter for those seashells and then we're able to transact in seashells. Because I would think really the invention of money was an enormous increase in productivity. Because let's say I have an ax, I make axes, that's all I do. I've got to find someone who's going to use that ax. So it means I have to specifically find like a hunter or, or someone who chops down trees or whatever, whatever people use axes for back then. And that would make it much slower to make a transaction because first I have to find someone to take my axes and then go down the chain of bartering until I could finally get someone who sells me food or whatever. Yeah, and again, I'm actually of the school of thought that that is so precarious that it never existed in the first place. Right. Uh, the other reason, which is problematic, is just pricing things would have been a nightmare. In a in a, in right. a world where there's no money, you have to price everything in terms of everything else, uh, which just cognitively, people can't do that. What in uh, economic nerd speak is called the unit of account function of money, which is it just gives you a single thing to price all other things in, including labor. That in of itself is one reason why having money makes society a lot more productive. So what do you think was the first money? I mean, there's various theories. Was it animal skins? Was it shells? When did they start making coins? The origins of money is very interesting and diverse and different things happen all over the world, but sometimes in parallel. But originally, yeah, people use what we call commodity money, which is anything that has some other value other than being the money. It could be grains, metals. Eventually, most societies in the East and the West settled on using metals just because they're more durable. It's easier in some ways to determine the quality of a hunk of gold than it is a bag full of grains. But then now we have a new problem, which is if you just use non-standardized metals, gold, silver, copper, whatever, now we have a new source of inefficiency in the economy. It's like me and you are going to do a trade for that axe and you're like, well, here's some silver, but I have a problem, which is one, I have to judge the quality of your silver. Is it pure? Is it an alloy? Is it, I don't know if there's a full silver. There probably is, but, and then I also have to, judge the quantity of your silver. Like I literally have to weigh it. This is where coins come into the picture because with coins, we have standardized quantity and quality. So again, even more efficient money. But how do you know, even when a government or a local you know, force is minting metal coins, how do you know for a given thing of silver, there isn't like just a bunch of copper in the middle that you can't see? You never know for sure uh, unless you do your own tests. But the idea has always been that if you have some kind of a powerful figure like a sovereign, the emperor, the king, whoever, if they are the ones who uh, have a monopoly on minting the coins, then you at least have more of an assurance of its reliability than it was if it was just a stranger doing it. Yeah, I mean, this is a very important topic, which is, and this is related to, to Bitcoin later on, which is that a government lives or dies literally based on people's trust in their money. Like, 
uh, you know, and we'll we'll get to this as well. The first paper currency was made by a kingdom in China around 600 BC, and it was paper money. It represented, I guess, some quantity of metal. I'm not really sure, but because it's paper, it's really worthless technically. And so, at the top of it, in the same place where we put "In God We Trust," they put, "If you counterfeit this, you will be beheaded." <laughs> that was the first kind of like way to build instill trust in the money. Like we will kill you if you damage the trust in this money. Yeah. I, I believe it was the bark of the mulberry tree and it was the uh I think it was the Mongols under Genghis Khan. Really? Yeah. But paper money has also always existed as a receipt for metal money. Um that's how it came about in the West. That's why we call them banknotes because you would go to the bank and they would have gold and then they would give you a paper receipt to claim some of the gold, and then you could just use that as money. But the original idea that, you know, one way to put it in modern technology terms is for money to be useful, it needs network effects. The more people are willing to accept any money, the more productivity everybody who uses that money has. So if you have a government issue the money and then have laws like what we call legal tender laws that say, hey, if you live in my kingdom, you have to use this money. And then also governments, a lot of times they will borrow in their own money. They will pay salaries like of soldiers in their money and they will collect taxes in their money. Uh, the whole idea being that we want to get to some kind of a society-wide standard because then commerce is easier for everyone uh, with the big trade-off, of course, that now we're putting a lot of trust in the hand of the issuer of that currency. Yuval Harari brings this up where he basically says that money is just a story that we believe in. Yeah. Because the paper dollar doesn't really have any value. It's a piece of paper. But if you believe in the value of that dollar, and let's say I live 5,000 miles away and I believe in the value of the dollar, those beliefs that we share are enough for us to trust each other in a transaction, which never would have occurred if there wasn't money, for instance. But getting back to money as gold or money as silver, it seems arbitrary that it was gold or silver. Like, how did it end up gold or silver? Because it seems like arbitrary because the richest country is going to be the one that has the most gold mines and silver mines in it. It is somewhat arbitrary. And societies have also used different metals for money. And a lot of times it's actually had to do with what they had enough of, but not too much of, for the exact reason that you say. Because there have been instances in history where, you know, like silver was predominant in Europe, but then uh, once the New World was discovered and invaded and colonized, and there was a lot of silver and it, it flooded the European economy with silver, then some people are like, well, let's switch to gold. There have also been other times where you actually have a shortage. There's just not enough of whatever metal that you're using, so you can't make as many coins as the economy requires, and then you end up switching to a different metal. It's very varied, but for whatever reason, gold and silver in more recent centuries sort of like occupied whatever the sweet spot is. But even then, it, there's been controversy because silver is easier to mine and there's more of it than gold. So whether your money, even if it is pegged to a metal standard on silver versus gold, has been a very interesting political issue. But like, you know, you, you said earlier how bartering 
would occur when we would be able to trade objects that have value or, or some form of money exchange. The, the original money was like commodity money or something would have some other value other than as money. People always say gold is a, a real thing. It's a hard asset, but does it really have value other than as money? I mean, yes, there are industrial uses for gold, but actually the same industrial uses occur for silver, which is 2% of the value of gold. So there's not really that many uses for gold. <laughs> No, and, and to go back to the point that you've all made about like money just being a myth, in a way you don't want it to have too much utility because that almost erodes the mythology. You know, like if we think of gold as this magic shiny metal that's hard to get out of the ground and it is the thing that will preserve your wealth and like you know you you give it as dowry to marry your children or something, then it holds a special place in our imagination. But if we also think of gold as like, oh, oh yeah, and also like, you know, I can make cookware out of it. It somehow takes away from that. And, and this applies to many things, right? Like why are diamonds valuable? Why are handmade uh, Rolex automatic watches valuable? Like th there's almost negative correlation between the utility of something versus how much we as a society accepted as a good store of value. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning 
where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Right now, we've talked about how some form of barter, not pure barter like we discussed earlier, but the idea of commodity money was originally you know, a kind of barter. And there was problems with that because one tribe might have a bunch of seashells and another tribe might have a bunch of animal skins and you still have to do too many conversions and you, you know, everybody would have to trust everybody's own money. But when it all became kind of similar from country to country, it's either gold or silver or some other kind of metal, you know, there's a little bit more, I can take Roman money, for instance, and exchange it for Persian money because at least it's all silver. So I can melt it down for roughly, you know, equivalent. So problems are solved with each evolution of money. And those problems ideally make society more productive, make transactions faster, make transactions more and more global. So the fact that, you know, Persia might've used silver and Greece might've used silver made it possible to do this international transactions even thousands of years ago. I mean, the problem with that is that if you have a lot of things to buy, or let's say your town was invaded and you have to move and you were a wealthy person, you had to carry a lot of gold around all the time, which kind of put a target on your back. Like that's a problem with, with purely, if we all just use metal as a currency still, we'd be in big trouble because uh, Jeff Bezos wouldn't be able to move very far. He'd be sitting on like this <laughs> mountain made out of gold. So obviously there's a problem. So whenever there's a problem, there's some sort of evolution. We evolved into paper money. But that seems very complicated because A, there are trust issues. B, who decides? Now you really need a strong central authority to decide what the paper money is worth and to enforce it for anybody who doesn't believe that the paper money is worth something. So I think they kept up this illusion that you could exchange the paper money for gold whenever you want or silver or whatever. But what's the evolution of the paper money? So it started with that convenience point that you made that people, particularly like if you're traveling to a, uh, you know, 
a, a different city or something to do business. You don't want to always be walking around with this heavy bag of gold or silver clinking in your pocket. So then what you do is you go and you store your metal money with a goldsmith or a bank or a money changer, and then they give you a receipt. Like That's where the paper initially comes in. It's like, all right, this gives you the right to get back your 10 coins whenever you want. And receipts are a lot more flexible because you can make it for one coin or 10 coins and they're lighter and they're easier to hide in your clothes or something so you don't get robbed. Right, so now I can go to the market and I, and let's say you're selling apples. I could yeah. say to you, hey, I want to buy an apple. Look, here's the receipt. You can now use it. We all know the money changer down the road. He's Jewish, so he's the <laughs> Jewish looking guy. So I give you the receipt. That was a sort of paper money as a receipt. No, it, it was. And that's what we call economic nerd speak again. That's representative money. It's not commodity money. So it it's the value is the fact that it represents something else. And in this case, it represents the right to go and claim silver coins in Europe or copper coins in China. But eventually you could see a situation where if everybody trusts this, at some point, like no one's bothering to go collect the metal money unless they want to go you know, travel across the ocean or something. Because like, yeah, we all know the guy down the road, he's got the coins. And now all that circulates is the paper. But that poses an interesting dilemma for the goldsmith or the bank who's issued the paper, which is if almost nobody ever shows up to collect the metal commodity money that you're holding, do you have to hold all of it? What if you just yeah. held 90% of it and the other 10% you invested it in a business enterprise or even loaned it out? Yeah, that's interesting. So that's the beginning of like fractional banking is what you're suggesting. Yeah. I would imagine also there were a lot more Madoffs back then. <laughs> Possibly, but also we're talking about much more primitive societies. And a lot of times the primary money changer or bank or goldsmith was like a very trusted, reputable family. Uh, you know, like this is where the Medici's come from. And it's, again, social mores and pressures and the threat of violence being what it is. You know, maybe actually in a small city with like 50,000 people where there's one family that's trusted as the family that holds the metal and issues the paper money maybe they're less likely to turn out to be fraudulent than a Madoff type figure. You know, that's a good point because it's not like people could escape to Switzerland or some <laughs> island. You know, everybody pretty much stayed in the city that they were born in because it was unsafe to wander, you know, afar by yourself. And so in order for a family like, let's say the Medici's or, or whatever families came before them to retain status, they have to be trusted because they have to stay in town the only way they could be fully trusted is if they make sure, probably through their own use of military force, that their currency is that their receipts are are trusted. Right, the two go hand in hand, and and of course you have there are still governments, and uh, governments have been creating rules around banking and money forever. But at the end of the day, because this is all just mythology, there is something fragile, somewhat precarious about it. Uh, and I think the simplest evidence of that is there have been thousands probably of different currencies throughout the ages that have at some point had some significant level of adoption in 
their local region and none of them survive to this day. So that means something. What does it mean? It means that money is precarious and that mythology is something that can grow, but it can also shrink. Uh, and one of the ideas that I try to explore in the book is the more it grows, the more likely that whoever stands behind it ends up betraying it. And some people would even argue that we're witnessing the US and the dollars version of that today in the sense that our currency is now the global standard and the global reserve currency. But we've used that as an opportunity to print a lot of it, which some people are not happy about. We've increasingly also weaponized it with things like sanctions, like we enforced on Russia. And there's a long history of this, of like some emperor's coin becomes so powerful and so universally accepted that that emperor starts doing nefarious things with it or even just like diluting the value of it, inflating it just because they think they can get away with it. And that leads to the demise of the myth and the currency. Well, you know, for a long time, I mean, forever, basically, until very recently, all paper currency, it seems, was backed by some commodity like gold or, or silver. So I guess at some point they switched from viewing receipts as money to actually a local force, whether it's a bank or a government or whatever, issuing real money with pictures on it and a, a one or a 10 or a 20 on it to represent how much it signifies and it becomes standardized throughout that society. And then we saw in, in I guess it was 1971, I mean, so, so there's a problem with this though, which is that what if your country doesn't have any gold or silver? <laughs> you can't make money that represents that gold or silver. Like you have to start invading other countries with gold or silver or, or go to the new, the new land, uh, you know, North America where there's more gold and silver. So you, I mean, you have to find this metal, but what if, you're, what if your economy is growing faster than your supply of the metal that is backing your currency? And so this was sort of happening in the United States in the 60s, the economy was growing, but also we were spending an enormous amount of money on Vietnam and LBJ's, you know, great society programs, which included, you know, welfare and student loans and all these things. And so Nixon finally said, look, we're not going to keep digging gold just to like match our need for money. You're going to just have to trust purely the dollar. Yeah. So the, the, the metal backing of money, one way to think about it is that it becomes a constraint on anybody abusing the mythology behind it. So like if your currency is backed by gold, and, and that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're like issuing gold coins. Even if you say, look, see that big fancy building with the columns over there? That's the central bank. And inside there, there's a lot of gold. And if you really wanted to, you could take your government-issued paper money over there and get some gold for it. So don't worry about it. We're not going to abuse it. We're not going to inflate it. We can't print too much of the paper money because there's only so much gold. But as you said, that comes with its own constraints and problems. A lot of times the most common has been things like war, uh, where the government needs to print or borrow a lot more than it ordinarily does, and it just doesn't have the gold. There are other problems with the a metal standard or a gold standard, somewhat less nefarious. Uh, and one of them is that it gives the issuer of the currency less control over the money supply and the credit cycle. Well, let me ask you, what happened in Germany in the 20s when suddenly, you know, 
it took a trillion marks to buy a, a loaf of bread. Like were German marks backed by gold? I don't even know. I actually don't know. I have not studied that period closely. I mean, but the things that we do know that in the aftermath of World War One, the devastation that they suffered, plus the reparations that they had to pay to the Allies. And I think they had to pay those reparations in the currency of the Allies. Right. Uh, so the German economy was almost like constantly exporting capital to its neighbors, uh, which then crippled its domestic economy and the currency. So one key thing which can cause hyperinflation, which is what everybody's worried about in the US, but this is not a problem we have. One problem many countries have is what Germany had in the 1920s, what South, what most countries in South America had in the 1980s, um, and on and on, what Zimbabwe had in whenever that was, the 1990s, is that if you borrow money in another country's currency, you risk hyperinflation if you can't pay that money back because you have to print more of your own currency to convert into dollars, for instance, to pay the money back. And it's just a death spiral. You end up printing trillions of marks in the case of, of Germany. Whereas the US doesn't have that problem. That's one key thing that helps us avoid hyperinflation. And that's why people are concerned if suddenly everybody starts transacting for oil in something other than the dollar, it could mean we might owe, we might not be able to A, lend as many dollars to people and B, we might owe money in currencies, not the dollar if we're buying oil, which we do. Yeah, and I think hyperinflation is actually the wrong thing to be concerned about because hyperinflation is is fairly rare. I think the bigger problem is if you just have a sustained period of elevated inflation, as we did here in the U.S. in the 70s and, and part of the 80s, that in of itself could be very devastating. That to me is a more reasonable concern about what could happen to the dollar. But it's not just the dollar. We are in this very unusual time in history where virtually all of the world's money is only backed by a promise by a government. So it's fiat money. There is almost no currency that's backed really significantly by any kind of commodity like gold or silver. Right. Uh, and some countries have currencies that are pegged to other currencies, but we can talk about this when we get into crypto, but I always think it's ironic when you hear economists and other experts say, Oh well, Bitcoin can't be money, you know, because money is something that's issued by a sovereign, and there's a central bank behind it, and they they adjust interest rates. But that's only been money for like 0.01 percent of the time that money's been a thing. The history of money has always been changing. Even in the U.S., I mean, a lot of in the 1800s, banks, local banks, would issue their own currency. So if you were in Montana, you could get like literally a three dollar bill from the bank in Montana. And it was good because that bank was supporting it. It's not like in 1830, people would go from Montana to Chicago to buy a coat. You would have to buy everything in your local town and you would use the local currency. So it's kind of only a recent thing that all money now is issued by governments. Yes. Not only that, but we're coming out of a period after COVID where all governments significantly increase the supply of their money at the same time. So it's not surprising then that we're going through a global period of high inflation. Just out of curiosity, like on the subject, and there's a lot of different directions to go on the subject of inflation, but if the price of eggs inflates and many other things like that, the big problem really is wages have to keep up with it. If wages kept up with it, no problem. But why aren't right now wages keeping up with 
just everyday inflation? Some wages are very sticky. So if you think about people who have contracts for what they make, Mm-hmm. Employers are generally hesitant. They don't, they don't just give raises for the sake of giving raises. There has to be some kind of a market dynamic that forces them to. Then there's the issue of automation and technology and innovation. Plus, frankly, like you know, people are sometimes hesitant to ask for more. Things are starting to pick up, aren't they? I don't follow the the macro data that closely but yeah and inflation supposedly has been going considerably down pretty quickly right now maybe because of the rate hikes maybe because of the stock market's gone down and so many people are invested in the stock market maybe just because of fear of a recession coming but it seems like one of those things where and this is a, a big debate but and a, and a different debate but whether the federal reserve knows what they're doing it, 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 you know or whether market forces no comment can be, <laughs> yeah, whether the market for well, that's the whole thing with the Bitcoin is that there's no central authority that decides the value of the dollars that are in your pocket. But I remember I had a, a Federal Reserve deputy governor on the podcast early in the pandemic, and he said the main worry the Federal Reserve had then was deflation because yeah. there was so much demand for the dollar around the world because the dollar was safe and is still the safest currency that they couldn't even inflate the dollar. And inflation is not necessarily bad. If your economy is growing, I mean, look, the, the dollar has quote unquote lost 97% of its value in the past 100 years. Like what the dollar, what used to be a dollar in 1913 is now worth three cents now in terms of what it can buy. But at the same time, it's the biggest period of growth and innovation in world history. I mean, we've put a man on the moon, we've created the internet, you know, we've practically curing cancer in the next few years. So, so inflation hasn't necessarily been a bad thing. It's, it's, healthy when people feel the growth in their country. Yeah, I think the only things we can say that are absolutes is hyperinflation is bad and extreme deflation is bad. Those, I think, are universally acknowledged as being scenarios to avoid. A deflation when it's not accompanied by product increases in productivity. Right. Like monetary deflation, yeah. When you get more in a phone this year than you got 10 years ago, like more apps and more speed and so on, the phone, in a sense, has deflated. Like the right. price, if you're paying the same price, but you're getting so much more, that's kind of a deflation in the currency. But it's not like the deflation experienced, for instance, in the depression, where people just hid their money in a mattress and were afraid to use it. So that was that resulted in deflation. Right. Yeah. If, if people become convinced that the value of money is only going to go up, then they don't want to spend it. They want to hoard it, which then diminishes economic activity. Which could be what's happening now. When interest rates go up, it means the demand for the dollar will go up, which means you don't want to spend your dollar for other things because you're getting a higher interest rate in your savings account. That's the hope of the Fed. But the politics of this is also very interesting because they're always winners and losers. So there's certainly people who really benefit from high inflation, like debtors, for example. They get to repay their debt with diminished value. But then there are people who really lose with it, which are people who don't have a lot of debt but earn some kind of a wage where it's going to be difficult for them to raise prices. And, and this is, for anyone who's a student of history, the back and forth on this is, uh, is always been very interesting and played a big part in U.S. politics. Um, like I'm, You probably know, James, the famous, uh, I think it was a William Jennings Bryan speech, the Cross yeah. of Gold speech, which is considered one of the greatest political speeches in American history, he was making the an, a 
argument against the gold standard. He actually wanted a bimetallic or a more silver-oriented standard because it's more inflationary. And at the time, you had people who were farmers who were like, look, we got mortgages, we got a lot of debt, and our crop prices are too low. Like, we need some inflation to economically right ourselves. Right, and there, were, there was practically no inflation back then in, in the 1800s, like almost zero. And, that, and, and having a gold standard or silver standard, to some extent, like you said earlier, controls inflation a little bit and, and doesn't allow the government to control inflation, which with pure paper money that's not backed by anything, the government pretty much controls everything. And, th and that's a big problem, which again, there was an evolution of money and we'll talk about Bitcoin in a bit. But it's interesting just the story of money though, like or what you refer to as the mythology of money. Like it's so hard, like you have to really be a mass hypnotist to convince people that this little piece of paper is worth one entire dollar. Like if you, if you really look at the US dollar, there's this beautiful calligraphy and design. So, okay, maybe you'll trust that. If you don't trust that, it's in God we trust. So if you don't trust the United States, United States of America is on the top, but if you don't trust the United States of America, maybe you trust God because it's in <laughs> God we trust. And then you have not only God, but look, kind of the God of America is George Washington. Like he's the first president. He's, he was the most, supposedly the most honest president. So maybe you trust George Washington. His picture's right here. He backs this dollar. And then if you don't trust that, it's like a contract. There's the signature of the treasurer of the United States and the secretary of treasury. And then there's this number like a eight seven four two six zero two four a Like why do we need to have that number? But it kind of signifies that this was really printed in the United States. And if you don't trust that, this, there's a, the words, this certificate is legal tender for all debts, public and private. And then there's Washington DC and there's a seal on it with an eagle. And then you turn it over. There's, if you don't believe any of that, maybe you believe in this, a pyramid <laughs> with a floating eye above it. Like this is ancient history. And there's, <laughs> then there's like Latin or some other language written there. This is like, it's not just us. The, the, people in Washington, D.C., it's it's ancient history. It's 5,000 years old, these pyramids. Like, we're going to, maybe you trust that. And on and on. Like, it doesn't stop the, no. the ways in which, you know, the, the mythology of the dollar is written all over the dollar. And, and you, we can also see this in our personal lives. Like, in, in uh, Sapiens, uh, Yuval Harari talks about, like, the other big myths, like religion being one of them. I think the three are language, religion, and and money. But the funny thing is, like, there are plenty of people today that walk around and they're like, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in religion. And you're like, yeah, fine. You're like a perfectly sane person. But if somebody comes up and he's like, I, I just don't believe in money and I'm never going to use it, you'd be like, wow, you've completely lost your mind. You need help. It's right. that pervasive of a myth. Well, and, and the thing is, you get in, obviously, you get in real trouble if you counterfeit money. So, again, just like the Medici's in Renaissance Italy, I mean, the U.S., you'll go to jail for a really long time if you counterfeit money. I mean, you probably know the Secret Service was actually originally, its job was to do things like crack down on counterfeiting of money and dollars. It just so happened, I think the story, wasn't it, that like their office was the closest to the White House, so when they decided the president should get additional protection, it would become something that they do too. But Oh, I didn't know that. Their original purpose, I'll, I'll have to verify this, but I'm pretty sure the original purpose had to do with making sure that 
people are not counterfeiting money because people counterfeit money, then it erodes the integrity of that money. And if the integrity is erodes, then people stop using it and then it collapses in value. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I remember in the 90s, early 90s, there was this period, the area where the so-called Silicon Alley was created, where all these web design agencies sprung up, there was more print shops. Like you needed a poster printed. You'd go to these print shops and they had these, you know, the latest technology in copy machines. Now, $100 bills always had anti-counterfeiting features and then it evolved to $20 bills. But these one group of guys... They were using their copy machines to literally print one and five dollar bills and ten dollar bills and just using them in you know local delis where nobody would question if they were counterfeit enough because they were so small. So counterfeiting has been like a big deal. Now it's all the way down to the, do- the dollar. I think there are anti-counterfeiting features of it. Yeah, I just googled it. So the Secret Service was, according to their own website, was founded in 1865 to stop counterfeiting because that after the Civil War, a third of all Currency in circulation in the U.S. was counterfeit. That's crazy. I knew this um, one artist, JSG Boggs, who he was ingenious. He would paint dollar bills for himself. And they would always have something wrong. Like maybe it would be like his picture on the $10 bill. So he would always do something where it was clear that it was not money. It was a, It was fake. But he was constantly being arrested by the Secret Service because he was painting money. Because here's what he would do. He would go to a restaurant. And at the end of the meal, they would give him the bill and he would say, listen, I don't have any money, but how about I give you one of my paintings? <laughs> and he would take out of his pocket a painting he did of a $10 bill and use that to pay $10 worth of his meal. And so two people would be sitting at the tables next to him in these restaurants. One, the Secret Service who would arrest him <laughs> and the other collectors who would then buy from the restaurant the $10 painting plus the receipt, and that's how they collected his art. Uh, it was a fascinating thing, though, mixing the art with the money like that. Because money's beautiful, too, because of all this symbolism. The door, yeah, it's fascinating. But people should look up. Like, if you Google JSG Box, he has some really beautiful paintings of, of fake money. So, but I, so obviously, though, paper money has its problems and needs to evolve, too. Like, the, one of the problems we discussed is the Federal Reserve, this central authority which doesn't really necessarily know what they're doing. Like the Federal Reserve does a lot of good, particularly in times like these where, you know, maybe banks need more trust behind them and, and or banks could collapse. 
but they also control the value of the dollar without your permission. Like they can either raise interest rates or they could print money. And by the way, what is it? Can you define what does it mean actually when they print money? So I think it's time to introduce another category of money, which is that throughout history, money comes in two forms. There's token money, which is money that has some kind of a physical representation, like a metal coin or a paper bill. And then there's ledger money, which is money that's just balanced, that's recorded on the ledger of some kind of an authority. It could be a bank, a fintech, the government itself. What does that mean? Like It means like when I transfer money from, let's say, Wells Fargo to Bank of America, on some ledger in Wells Fargo for my account, money's subtracted, and on Bank of America in some digital ledger in a computer, money's added, but no actual currency goes from one bank to the other. That's right. And, and the vast majority of money in existence today is ledger money. Uh, even like you can go on the Federal Reserve and look up the statistics. I think there's only something like $2 trillion uh, in physical bills and notes out there, but over $20 trillion in dollars that are nothing more than really in modern times database entries at either commercial banks like Bank of America or the Fed itself. And, and this is true in every country, in every currency, in part because ledger money is a lot more convenient. If you think about like large transactions, you wouldn't want to buy your house by showing up with duffel bags full of cash. Although I, I was recently told that that's standard practice in Argentina because it's dollarized. Yeah. There's a black market, a blue market, and the regular market in yeah. Argentina. And then there's the Bitcoin market to signify the different types of currency there. Right. Um, and then ledger money is more useful across long distances. Like you, you wouldn't want to ship money to another country if you're making an investment there. It's more useful for capital markets. Like imagine if every time you traded stocks, you'd have to pay in cash. And more recently, it's really a big part of the digital economy. Like one of the great innovations of rideshare services like Uber was that they integrated credit card payments into the app. So you no longer had to do this awkward thing that you and I remember that you take a cab and it gets there and the cab driver is like, that'll be 1850. And you're like, I only have a 50. Do you have change? And it's very cumbersome. So right. there are many benefits to ledger money. But there's a couple of big downsides. And one of them is that you have to trust whoever is maintaining the ledger to do a good job of it. It's one of the reasons why banking and fintechs are highly regulated. Like You wouldn't want it to be like Bank of America accidentally deleted your balance and then your money's gone forever. And this is really a software issue. Like, How did they avoid, when they started doing this, how did they avoid like not having major software issues where people would just lose their bank accounts and the bank would have no record of it so they wouldn't be able to confirm or deny it's well one is you would have a record of it so hopefully you, you would mean, go I and wouldn't. deposit your money and then they would give you a receipt that says like you have this deposit here and they give you statements monthly that attest to that yeah. but really like auditors controllers government regulators there's a very very complex apparatus whose job it is to make sure that these ledgers maintain integrity, which is not something that you need for token money. Like the $20 bill in your wallet is a $20 bill in your wallet. You could lose it, possibly, if you lose your wallet, but it's not like accidentally going to suddenly disappear, nor, importantly enough, can 
a corporation or a government just snap its finger and make that $20 bill go away or be worth you know, $1. Uh, and this is an interesting segue when we get into the world of cryptocurrencies because a lot of people, when they think about something like Bitcoin, they focus on the supply, it's decentralized, there's only ever going to be 21 million of it, there's no central bank that can print more, etc. But I think just as importantly, there is the integrity that the whole complicated blockchain infrastructure provides, which is that while it is a kind of ledger money, right? The blockchain is a ledger, it's a database. It has unique properties of token money, one of which is that if you have a Bitcoin in your wallet address, nobody can deny you access to your Bitcoin in the way that banks routinely actually like deny people access to their own money. And it's not going to just like suddenly disappear because of a mistake or an accident. So we're going to talk about crypto and Bitcoin and the next evolution of currency in part two of this question, the history of money. But let's just list up until Bitcoin, the state of money has evolved to being, you know, paper money combined with 90% this sort of digital ledger money, like money just kind of stored in a database. And we didn't really answer the question of how do you, how does one print money? I guess the idea is the Federal Reserve just oh, sorry. Yes. It just increases what's on the ledger, but but I'm not sure why. But we'll talk about that in part two. Okay. But what are the problems of this digital ledger money, which is most of the money we use and spend right now? So it's two. One is the supply issue, which is that it's because it's trivially easy. You know, the, the TLDR of it is that for the Federal Reserve to create new dollars, they just put in a number into a database. Like at least in the old days, you had to physically print more money to a certain extent, but now it's all done electronically. And then the other thing is this question of access, uh, which is that in with ledger money, you're trusting the preserver of the ledger, the bank, to always give you access. And there are many legal reasons where banks don't. In fact, there are many legal reasons where they're obligated to deny you access, right? If law enforcement goes to them and tells them to freeze your money. Uh, and then in the geopolitical sense, you have things like economic sanctions. So those are two of the big downsides or risks of ledger money as controlled by governments and corporations. And then when you get into the world of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, there is you know the, the supply goes up, but it goes up algorithmically on a preset schedule, and nobody can suddenly be like, oh, well, there's a pandemic going on. We need to print more Bitcoins. And then your access, my access, actually literally anybody else's access is guaranteed by the technology. So those are the two main problems. I would say there's a few others, but so just to, to summarize, one is if suddenly the Federal Reserve quietly decided to just double the amount of money in the system, then the dollars in your pocket lose value would be cut in half in value because unless right. the economy was itself doubled in innovation and productivity, there's no reason why there should be twice as many dollars in the system. And so that's what really causes inflation, which means the value of the dollars in your pocket go down and you had no say over that. And then problem number two, problem number two is access. If the government decides it doesn't like you, they could basically shut off access to your bank account. And that happens, by the way. So Yeah, I mean, if your bank decides that, that, that they don't like you, they could do that. Or they could deny you a bank account in the first place. Right, which has been a, a major problem in, in some areas of society. So there's a variety of problems there. I would say there's additional problems. One is 
there's there's the possibility of human error. Like we discussed, mm. what if your bank just loses track of your money somehow? There's a software bug or or there's a criminal or whatever. Another is there's fees in the system because I have to use a bank. And by the way, some people are, are don't don't have enough money to put money into a bank, and so they have their own issues. But because I have to use a bank, I have to pay fees. And let's say I was going to wire you money. I got to go through my bank, then the local reserve bank, then the Federal Reserve, then your local reserve, and, and so on. There's fees along the way. So I think you, Omen, were the one who told me, like, how, many, how much fees are baked into the financial system worldwide? I think total the revenues of the world's payment providers is somewhere in the vicinity of $3 trillion a year. Three trillion, and that's the fees. That's not you know. There, it's either fees. So, so you send the wire, they charge you a fee. You use a credit card, the store has to pay a fee. But also, if you think about like forfeited interest, like if you have money in a checking account at a big bank right now, they're not going to pay you interest on it. You know that five percent interest that you could be earning now goes to them. So cumulatively, that's you can think of it as a tax on the entire economy. Right, and and with crypto because you're avoiding all of these systems that was kind of glued together in a hodgepodge sort of way, crypto solves all these problems. Furthermore, and this is the kind of the topic of your book, Rearchitecting Trust, you don't have to trust your bank with crypto. Like your bank could go out of business, but you still have immediate access to your money. It's in a sense, you bank yourself. That's right. And, you know, there's a lot, of, we, we've, we've seen this. Like for the first, you know, Satoshi invented Bitcoin in around 2009, or he released it in 2009. And that was right after the financial crisis where people were worried every bank was going out of business. Fast forward 14 years, suddenly everybody's worried once again, every bank. This is was actually the dream come true for Satoshi in 2009. Banks have actually gone out of business now again. And Bitcoin shoots up as a result because this is the problem it was meant to solve. And it actually does solve it. If you look at survey data in the US, when they ask them about what kind of institutions people trust. Uh, a lot of times the least trust, trusted institutions are government and then banks and Wall Street. And one way to think about the existing fiat money system is that it is a system that is controlled by the governments and banks. When you move into the crypto domain, it is a system that's, that's actually mostly controlled by no one, but to the extent that there are any decisions that have to be made, they are made by the community. And that's why there are certain people who are actually very passionate about this being a new paradigm about how we create money and then preserve its integrity. And so in part two, we're going to cover a lot of this. Plus, uh, we'll cover what happens when there's central bank digital currencies, because that brings up some of the old problems again in a scary way, maybe even worse even though it has a crypto sort of feel to it. So money could evolve. We could see money evolve even further. But in the meantime, this is part one, the history of money. If you have any questions about what we discussed here, just tweet out at me, at Jay Altucher, or tweet out at, at Omid, uh, Malakan Ohms, M-A-L-E-K-A-N-O-M-S, and we'll answer again on this podcast. But history of money, part two, written by Mel Brooks. I feel like that's <laughs> what it's <laughs> History of Money Part Two. Uh, we'll be in, a, in a, a couple weeks after this one, so we have time to you have time to ask questions, and that's going to cover kind of all the new evolutions in money and what even might be coming down in the future. So, Omid, thanks so much for your expertise. It was so fascinating. I didn't really know a lot of these things, and that's the history of money, Part One. Thanks, James.
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 